I'd like to welcome you all to this Gender Institute public lecture um, and to say a couple of things that are sort of uh, um, a welcome more broadly, because after this event, and I was going to forget to say this event at the beginning, after this event we're, we're hosting a reception for Bev Skeggs in the Gender Institute, which is just a little bit up the road, um, and if you just follow one of us up there, uh, you'll find us, and you're all very, very welcome to come to that as well. Um, what we're going to do today is, uh, Bev's going to speak for about 40 minutes, and then uh, there'll be plenty of time for questions because we're not going to be thrown out of here until 8 o'clock. So um, I really, it's a really, really enormous pleasure to welcome Bev Skeggs. Um, her work is, uh, has been incredibly important to a number uh, of um, scholars just within our department, let alone in the much wider community. Um, and we were all so excited when she accepted the invitation uh, to give a public lecture. Um, just uh, so as you know, uh, Bev Skeggs is Professor of Sociology at Goldsmiths uh, now. She's also the holder of a number of prestigious um, academic accolades, including being uh, an academician of the Academy of Learned Societies for the Social Sciences. She's Honorary Professor of Sociology at the University of Warwick. She's been awarded honorary doctorates from Denmark and Sweden. She has um, an immensely prolific uh, um, publishing history, so I'm not, going to, I'm not going to tell you anything like everything that she's done, but I would just uh, highlight a, a few things. Um, feminist cultural theory, production and processes, formations of class and gender, uh, becoming respectable, which is, um, which is a, a, a really, really uh, vital piece of work for many of us. Class self-culture, um, again, a really uh, extraordinary publication. Um, sexuality and the politics of violence, feminism after Bourdieu. Uh, Transformations, Thinking Through Feminism, which is um, a book which many of us keep going back to for all the many things inside uh, there. Um, some of those are edited collections, some of those are, are her own work. But uh, as this list suggests, um, I'd just like to say that her, her central sort of interest in class, value, um, and the making of gendered selves um, has been a, a, a commitment through the vagaries of the kind of fashions of academia, which has meant that she's actually sort of been this voice which has kept reminding many of us about class in case we were ever, you know, uh, in danger of forgetting. And I think these, uh, these kinds of interrogations have been hugely influential to a whole range of scholars. So I'd like to welcome Bev Skeggs to you. Thank you, and thank you for inviting me, and thank you, James, for organising everything. And I will apologise to myself, because I am very jet-lagged, um, and so if I suddenly glaze over, kind of whistle or shout or something, I, um, I should be okay, because I have been working on this area for so long, I really should know what I'm talking about. Um, the paper has a huge kind of background, which is it's the story of my life, or literally the story of um, parts of my life, and the story of my theoretical uh, trajectory. 
Um, and so it, behind it are quite a lot of complex debates that are filled out in the books in various different ways. But I realised recently, having um, just finished a project on reality television, thankfully, um, which will uh, culminate in publications very soon, that there were incredible threads running through all the work that I've been doing. And when asked to write a paper for the feminist... Um, See, I knew this would happen if I hadn't written it down. Uh, um, Feminist Legal Studies Journal to reflect upon value and class. It made me rethink and go back to a lot of work that I'd done. And I do think we are haunted by the moment that we enter into kind of significant academic debate. And for me, I entered in the 1980s when the kind of real heavy, hardcore debates were around ideology and the really hard, heavy core politics was Thatcherism. Interestingly, I think it's much worse now than it was in the 1980s. Um, and I will go into that. So I think there's also a kind of political relevance as well as a theoretical relevance to what I'm about to say, or at least I hope there is. So it is returning to respectability, thinking about what does that mean, and including in this analysis both value and ideology, but please note the question mark. The question mark is really important. When I began this research into respectability, which I will go on to give you a context to, um, for me this is probably the key quote of the book. All my life I've wanted to say, look, I'm as good as you. Well, now I think this house says it. It says, I've made it, I'm respectable, and you can't put me down. Yvonne is basically saying, stop judging me. Stop judging me as valueless. I'm now defending myself. I'm now protecting myself, but I am aware of the judgment. This was constant throughout this book. And you can see how old it is, um, which began, and I'll go on to see the legacy of it. But those comments were absolutely replete throughout that book. So, to give you a context for this paper, which begins um, with my mother, uh, and I didn't know whether to include this or not, but she's still haunting me, um, and still phoning me and haunting me and telling me that I'm not respectable, but um, it begins with my own fear of not being respectable in so many ways, and clearly, I'm a professor. I should be really respectable, I shouldn't have any doubts about respectability, but for her, I am a disappointment and really not respectable in so many ways. So it's there, it's haunting, and it will never go away. But my formal kind of uh, concern, which of course was biographical in many respects, began a long, long, long while ago. It began in 1981 as a PhD on how state cuts that were being implemented at the time through Thatcherism were enabled by training working-class women out of the labour market to induce them to provide free care, voluntary care, to literally not become workers. It's very different to how it is now. There's absolutely no concern to use education as a form of governance, a form of political containment. Things like the withdrawal of the EMA are literally show a government that doesn't care about containing the working class anymore, doesn't really care about policing them in lots of different ways, I think. But... Um, at that time, there's a huge, huge amount of effort had gone into vocational training for working-class boys and girls, different types, of course, which began in Northern Ireland as an attempt to stop um, young people joining terrorist groups, but then filtrated through things like youth opportunity programmes and youth training schemes. It's politically different now, but that's how I began the work. 
It began, and it was a three-year ethnography. It's very rare to be able to do such work uh, anymore, very rare, and I think I was incredibly privileged. I actually lived in the area and worked on caring, worked teaching caring courses, but also with the 86 young women that I studied. And then I followed them after, I still lived in the area for a long period of time, and then kept in touch with them and kept going back and followed the production of their subjectivity over time. Now, what's significant for me in that is that it, was a, it enabled me to trace their investments. It enabled me to trace their positions. It enabled me to understand how they lived life. It enabled me very much to understand the difficulties and the ease of the things that they were living. They, the thing about ethnography is it's not like the one-off interview where you get discourse in a kind of perfectly framed way. It's replete with contradictions, difficulties and problems. And so that was very important for how I go on to understand investment because understanding how people can keep investing in particular things or why they keep investing in particular things becomes very significant to my kind of whole project. Now what was important about the, the caring courses that these 86 young women that I was studying as part of an ethnography that began the study of respectability was that I found out how um, these uh, caring courses, and we still do have them, we have them in further education courses, but there's less emphasis placed upon them now. These caring courses have a massively long history. They began um, with the schools for mothers in the 1870s um, and were also forms of them were used for the Boer War. The big problem or the big legacies behind schooling working class women for motherhood was literally, literally to produce young boys who could be sent to war, to produce artillery basically, to produce those who could be killed for the sake of the na nation. So schools for mothers, which are now the caring courses that we have, which are all about an education in respectability, is respectability for the nation, but respectability that produces a very particular form of reproduction, both biological and social. And so I was very interested in history, and I'm always interested in historical legacies. Where do the legacies of respectability come from? It's absolutely crucial to understand the whole project about what gender or what class actually is or can be lived. So I was interested in that classic Marx dictum, how people make history but not in the conditions of their own choosing. Instead, focusing on the conditions of possibility by which they can make history, which is the frame for all of this. Now, bizarrely, my PhD, although turned into an ethnography of young white working class women on caring courses in further education, began actually as a critique of uh, Althusserian ideology. For those of you who weren't around in the 1980s, it was kind of, <laughs> it was uh, the religion, it was uh, the truth, in the same way as kind of Foucault took over in the 2000s. Um, and the truth was that we were interpolated in various different ways through representational hailing or through the misrecognition into a particular way of being which was always ideological, big kind of huge long argument. There was some fantastic feminist critiques of ideology and there was some fantastic feminist analysis of how interpolation and ideology worked. So Judith Williamson provides, if, if anybody hasn't read it, it's still, a, I think, an absolute classic book, decoding advertisements on how Althusserian ideology could be understood. The huge problem for me was that it assumed fit 
which also becomes a problem when I go into Bordeaux. It assumes there is a fit, it assumes that interpolation works, and it assumes that representation is absolutely key to this ideological um, consent. So then through the 80s and the 90s, there's all these massive critiques of Althusser, and they all go through Gramsci, and we all kind of decide uh, ideology is probably not quite the right word, and everybody moves into discourse. And as everybody moves into discourse, and of course I'm giving a vulgar re re, you know, rendition of 20 years of work, but um, as we move into discourse, and I certainly do in various ways, it gives us some things. It gives us much more detailed analysis. It gives us a much more extended way of understanding subject positions and their possibility. But it actually loses a lot of sense of the power of class relationships. And to or for this paper, significantly, the power of class relationships is literally about class as a relation. What one class can extract from another class and what one class loses as a result of that power relationship. So I'm not talking about the hierarchical understandings of class, the measurement of class, the, all the kind of uh, pseudo-Weberian forms of class that were developed for understanding tax, literally hierarchical understandings of taxation, of, of classification were developed by governments to work out how to tax people more effectively. They then get adopted through various different social uh, policy models. I'm talking about a Marxist idea of extraction of value from one class that benefits the class that can extract it. So labour, of course, is the most obvious way of understanding that, but I'll go on to show there's lots of other ways of understanding that antagonistic, fraught, extracting, exploiting relationship. It's not a straightforward, let's measure class. Has everybody got that? Because that's really, really crucial. <laughs> it's not about hierarchy. It's about power. And so... What respectability, I go on to argue, becomes is a way of living in justice, is a way of one group performing respectability, performing to the standards established by another group. It's very interesting in the legacies of the Boer War, in the legacies of the schools for mothers, um, and in the legacies, in fact, in the early history of social work, people like Octavia Hill, trying to impose upon working class women very particular standards of respectability that they can absolutely in no way achieve. If you think about the cleanlinesses next to godliness that was imposed upon um, women in the East End when open sewers ran through the streets, and the early proponents of social work were, you know, wearing white and being godly was a good thing to be. Wearing white in a street of open sewers is not a good thing to be. So the kind of, the, the standards that are imposed, I'd argue, ideologically by one class on another class are absolutely crucial to this. And so, as I said at the beginning, the formations research, which kind of contains a lot of those legacies, obviously I can't do justice to all of them, but contains a lot of that, haunted me as I recently researched reality television. Now, reality television, I won't go into it in a great amount of detail because it was a big project. And it was a project um, that we had for 30 months funded by the ESRC to study the moral economy of reality television. Um, it began because I was so outraged by wife swap and the humiliation that women endured when they were swapped. Um, 
And interestingly, it began with a straightforward analysis of representation, if we think back to um, ideology and ultras there. And if you just look at the representations of reality TV, what you see is a phenomenal amount of symbolic violence. Straightforwardly, working class women are recruited because they need transforming. There's a whole paper written about why they agree to be recruited, but they are recruited um, because they literally um, can be the most spectacular version of that which needs transformation. And there's various different forms of reality TV, and what I'm talking about is not Big Brother or the psychological experiment freak show sort, but the self-transformation ones that work on how you can become a better person if you pay attention to the standards that are exposed through reality TV. And we looked at the various ways those standards can be imposed. They can be imposed through swaps. People learn that they can do it better and do it differently, and there's always an argument at the end about what that constitutes. Or they can learn it through experts. Experts becomes one of the big points of contestation. But for the reality TV programme, what we see, very, very similarly to the young women of the ethnography for the formations research, is that they are considered, just like the early schools for mothers, they are considered to be problematic. Their bodies are wrong, their eating habits are wrong, their clothing's wrong. Everything about the women who are recruited to perform on reality television programmes are usually about being the wrong subject, the wrong person, the wrong practices, the wrong aesthetics. Everything is wrong, and the point of reality TV is to show them how to become the good subject. This is exactly the same as what you could say caring courses were. You go on a course and you learn how to feed a baby properly and make a bed properly. In fact, if you can find me a 16-year-old working-class woman who doesn't know how to feed a baby properly, you know, I'll give you a medal because it's very, very rare. You're brought up to actually learn all that caring work at a very, very early age. But we see in the same way as we do with formations, we see how on reality television all the cultural dispositions are inscribed and read on bodies as pathology. The women on reality TV, and I know I'm making generalisations and we have written two books and about 50 articles, so honestly follow me through if you, if you want to look at this in more detail. Um, their bodies are read in forensic detail as being bad and there's lots of, of research that shows how every element of their practice is wrong. So we called it a process of metonymic morality whereby every single bit of appearance and every single bit of body and every single practice is wrong. So even speech is wrong, eating's wrong, feeding children's wrong, everything's wrong. That's the pleasure is kind of finding out the wrongness of it all. Now, <coughs> as a result of this, a similar process occurs in the reality TV project as it does to the ethnographic project. And that is that the subjects of reality TV uh, the participants and the audiences that we studied felt that a lot of the women had been misrecognised and dis diminished as a result of the attribution of wrongness, bad practice, lack of value to them. So there was a lot of contestation in the way our audiences, we had four groups of women watching TV programmes with us and we analysed how they understood those television programmes.
programmes. We actually talked to them about how they felt about the reality TV programmes and the reality television uh, participants. Interestingly, even for me, who has studied class relationships for 20 years or so, I could not believe the class differences in the responses of the audiences. Our middle class audiences um, were much less concerned about what happened to the participants. They thought they were being exploited and it was wrong to expose people in that way. But they ultimately thought it was trashy people doing trashy things and if somebody had agreed to go on the programmes, they deserved all they got. The working class groups, which were black, South Asian and white, felt entirely differently for different reasons, but they did feel that the television participants were being humiliated and shamed and felt that this could happen to them too. They felt that the value of the women on the programmes was not being recognised at all and that the humiliation was intense. And one of the key comments that one of them kept saying throughout the research was, that's harsh which came to kind of set, set the terms for what was going on. Now, in the formations research, and we couldn't follow this through in the reality TV research, in the um, formations research, when women knew they were being misrecognised and judged as being the wrong person with the wrong value, they learnt not to put themselves into very particular social spaces. They literally learnt to take them out of social space. So the, the, the classic example is when the um, young women go up to Kendall's, which is kind of a bit like, is it like Harvey? It's not as posh as Harvey Nicks, is it? It's House of Fraser, House of Fraser in Manchester. And they force the women to spray them with perfume because normally they get ignored. So something that most of us would try and avoid, they know is a statement of devaluation, not being sprayed. Think about that the next time you walk into Harvey Nicks. Not being sprayed is about devaluation, as far as they were concerned. So they stop putting themselves into the social spaces whereby they could experience humiliation. So that becomes really important in terms of where would they go and what would they do. Likewise, with the formations research and with the reality television, all of them, nearly, nearly all of them, apart from the women over the age of 60, disidentified from the category working class. They disidentified from the category of working class because it was a category when applied to women which meant bad person, excessive, excessively sexual, excessively fecund and excessively loud. So they disidentified, I mean again, I've written a lot about this, but they disidentified from the term working class so it wasn't something that they could mobilise around. But then it becomes quite interesting, but I'm leaving that there for now. And so <clears throat> in the past and in... What they did in both the formations research and the reality TV research is to challenge what they considered to be the misrecognition of them as bad people. This was the TV participants as well as the audience, as well as the women of the ethnography. They claimed respectability. They said, those people don't know how good we are, basically. We care much more for our children. We look after ourselves much more. We maintain our relationships much more. So they claimed respectability by being and claiming, being proper, they were proper, proper care, proper aesthetics, they looked after their bodies properly, and literally becoming the proper subject. So there was a challenge constantly, which is what we called a moral economy. There was a challenge constantly to claim value, and to claim value through claiming respectability. 
So respectability was a value performance, a performance of value. Now, in the past, some people have accused me of saying that that meant they wanted to become middle class. They really did not. If you look at the ethnography, they really, 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 really did not want to become middle class. They just wanted to be recognised as having value and not subject to constant devaluation. So respectability, the claiming of respectability was a defensive and positive performance for them and it worked both aesthetically, they actually, if you, some of the comments to Trini and Susanna, if people know what not to wear and Trini and Susanna um, was, was kind of um, a real challenge to the aesthetics of the experts. Dispositional, they claimed that they had more care to give than those who left their children at home or worried too much about their work. Relational, they cared about other people and other people in their community. And effective, they would effectively connect to other people. So there's quite a challenge on that front. But they were also trapped, I argue, and this happens on both formations and reality TV, by investments in the paradox of caring. To confuse the labour of caring with the disposition to care is a really, really difficult contradiction to unpick. It's very difficult, unless it's a straightforward performance of job, um, to unpack those two. So I show in the book, eventually, after 11 years, that to care is to display respectability is to have value but that also gets connected with the voluntary labour that they are expected to perform having been educated out of the education system and of the work system. So ultimately morality was absolutely central to the formation of class and gender intimately lived as judgment and value. And I think what's difficult in all this is that you can't or it's very difficult to unpack and you can do it in terms of um, abstraction, but to actually look at how class and gender are working together is quite complex, and we'll see this working out as we go through. So, and this is because it's lived at the dispositional and intimate level, and it's based on judgment, practice, and affect. So, I also show how traditional feminist understandings of femininity did not fit the women, and that kind of is part of the critique and also for those from the Gender Institute, how femininity was performative. But, and this is where reality TV becomes very important, uh, reality TV is very interesting because it, what it does is make the performance of femininity, of caring, of class, being the wrong person, absolutely spectacular and gratuitous. It's not about unconscious performance of gender. It's about the full-blown unpacking of gender in every form. So... Reality television is conscious performance of gender, not iteration or performativity. It's spectacular. Now, I'm just quickly going to go through this, because otherwise a lot of it won't make sense. Uh, so the understanding of value, or the understanding of ideology, even began with um, the use of Bourdieu. And I actually began with basic Bourdieu 101 really which is you know Bourdieu understands people as having four forms uh, different types of capitals cultural social economic and symbolic to which we have access as we grow up and congeal in the body generating dispositions which he calls habitus as you'll see I have huge problems with the concept of habitus because it's too organized and too regulated 
But what's very important about Bourdieu is that the ability to accumulate different capitals in volume and composition over time enables some bodies to move around in social space with ease, entitlement and value, and others not to. So it's very important to think about who can move through social space and the dispositions of entitlement and confidence. For Bourdieu, there's a huge problem. I mean, he's the most brilliant analyst in power, I'd argue. He's great on masculinity, he's great on the middle class, he's fantastic on academia, but he can't understand femininity, powerlessness, or the working class. We, again, we, <laughs> we've written a book on this, so, you know, I can substantiate that. So I tried to think, well, what if femininity was a form of cultural capital? Not in Bourdieu's traditional sense, but for Bourdieu, you know, high capital for women is um, to be, you know, the most aesthetically thinnest person in the world who kind of represents the value of one's husband. So there's a huge problem with Bourdieu. But what if we think about femininity as a form of capital that can be traded, a resource that can be put to use? And so rather than making a structural homology between people's positions and dispositions, which is what Bourdieu does, when we add in lots of other factors, femininity as low cultural capital, race, nation, into the composition, sexuality in particular, we find a series of disruptions, dispersals and ambivalences rather than repetitions and habits. And that's why I think the performance of value becomes so important. It's not something we do unconsciously because we are part of a structural homology that forms us into a regulated shaped habitus, as Bourdieu would argue, but it's about trying to struggle for value constantly, trying to win something by which you are constantly judged and devalued. So the sense of struggle becomes very important and the sense of ambivalence becomes very important. So that's why I say at the end, there's a book Lisa and I did just called Feminine, Feminism After Bourdieu where there's lots of great chapters in that by other people that are very, very good. <coughs> so this is about gender and sexuality is not an object or a property or identity of the per person, but a performance that is part of a value struggle. It's a dynamic practice, something we do, we repeat, we try on, we're ambivalent about, and we're always doing and becoming. And so the women of the formations research display their distance from class standards of femininity through explicit performances, which is what they're doing on television constantly. And historically, femininity was not a possibility because working-class women lived di different economic conditions. In fact, working-class women, if you look at the work of um, Maltby Mayhew, and it is Maltby, isn't it, the guy who's obsessed with dirty working-class women with big hands. Is it Maltby? <laughs> Mumby, that's it, Mumby. Mumby. Um, as in, working-class women were not seen. They were literally the constitutive limit to femininity. So, thinking about what is possible, the conditions of possibility, how we can live and how we can act. And so, femininity and working-class women were always represented as excess always the limit to respectable gender. So if they are the limit, the constitutive limit, how do they then gain value from that which they cannot be? Well, one of the things we looked at is how they enjoyed the excess of being the bad person, which I always think is quite important. And the other thing, and Les is in the, the room here, when Les and I did a project on sexuality in space, um, we looked at how things like gender and sexuality get deployed as resources and how property gets turned into propriety at various moments when it can be converted. So, 
I was going to go into this, but I'll, I'll just pay, draw your attention to it and not go into it in, in a great deal. A huge amount of politics over the last, um, oh, I don't know, say 10, 15 years, I'm trying to think, Wendy Brown, 1995, does the first critique of it, but it didn't seem to be a, a powerful enough critique to make the debates go away. But identity, a bit like Foucault, identity seemed to take over the world of politics for a, a long period of time. Um, now, as you can imagine from the formations research and from the politics of class, if you cannot identify with a particular identity, there's no point having it as a politics because you can't mobilise it around it. Disidentification is unlikely to make a very form of positive politics. So what we have with problems with misrecognition and disidentification is how to organise and mobilise a politics around that which is impossible to identify with. And this is why I end up coming to other politics. And so if we think about the emphasis that's been placed on identity... All of those debates have been about who can make a claim on the state. Again, very important in terms of ideology, because ideology is all about the state influences who we are and what we are, but I think it's becoming much less, less significant. Also, I think identity is the idiom by which many groups still establish their public credibility. And as Sarah, who's in the room as well, has argued, and people like Marilyn Fraser have argued, visibility is only is limited to very particular groups who want to be made visible, who want to claim visibility. Now, what's very interesting about the paradox of reality TV, it makes visible the lack of value and the badness and the impropriety of those who don't necessarily want that revealing and don't know that they're meant to be bad subjects. And this is one of the, the key points in it. For those who are on our reality TV research, and certainly for the women's of the formations research, what continually perplexed them was why people thought they were bad. Why they were constantly judged as not having the right dispositions, not having the right clothes, not caring in the right way, not doing the right things. It's very perplexing. It was only when I first went to university did I realise I was a bad person. And it's like I realised, you know, as soon as I go to university, I'm actually, everything about me is wrong. Everything, like everything. And it was quite a fright, and it took me about a year to work out that I was wrong, and everything about me was bad. I've learned to kind of negotiate it in various different ways now. But the, the shock was, was quite extreme. So I think there's a, there's a whole perplexity around recognition and who is being recognised. And what reality television does, as do caring courses, is literally misrecognise the value of somebody and work out that what they have... Um, is wrong, and they don't understand why they are being read as the wrong person, doing the wrong things, having the wrong things, not wanting the right things, everything about them. And if you think the new Labour government spent ages going, you've got the wrong aspirations, the wrong ambition, the wrong, you are totally wrong in every way, we don't need you anymore, um, which has kind of been amplified even more. So... I think there's a huge problem with identity... And politics of recognition, and I'm just kind of flagging that up, and it excludes those. The Terry Lovell does fantastic work on who can stand for um, 
the good subject of a political regime and she looked at how the young woman who uh, sat on the front of the bus in the white seats before Rosa Parks had to be excluded from that campaign because she was 15 years old and a single parent who was pregnant and they had to wait until a more respectable woman came in to use her as the flagship. Likewise, in our research on sexuality, only some people can be representative of good and uh, sexuality with propriety. So my question really is, and this is what I'll kind of come to, but finish, is, <laughs> is how do those who've been devalued, who exist, either being humiliated on television or go into education and learn that they are the wrong people with everything wrong about them, who do have their own values and who have learned to have their own values, how do they live in conditions of constant symbolic devaluation, of conditions where they have to take themselves out of shops, in conditions where they learn they don't want to interact with teachers or with social workers or with people who are going to judge them? How do they live those conditions of devaluation with value? Now, behind this question is the whole next book, which is all about value, and I'm not going to go into that because it's about exchange value, use value, and I get very, very kind of dense. But it's, that's, that's the ultimate question. And is this a question of ideology, I ask myself, or is it a question of value, and how do they come together? So that's what I'm going to look at, and I'm going to kind of re-stress the themes that are now occurring on reality TV which hopefully will make it all sense. So reality TV, I want to argue, reveals the moral economy as written on women's bodies. I've said they are, the women are recruited to display the need for transformation. And I want to argue that this is very, very classed. And it's very classed and it's ideological because of the standards that are imposed upon the women that come from a previous historical class struggle. So the fact that middle class women were able to gain expense to literally leave their home because they could employ labour to do their work for them, the domestic servants of the Victorian period, um, literally means that there are standards that are being imposed upon one group that the other group can benefit from. We're now in a very interesting moment where domestic service is rising again massively and we do have middle class women including myself, able to uh, rely on labour of others for various different things at work and not at work. So that class relationship is built into the ideological struggle for who can use whom and who imposes standards upon whom and who can legitimate the imposition of those standards. What's very different in the current conditions from my earlier research and respectability is that women are now expected to perform their value on television. In the past, if we look at Carolyn Steedman's fantastic historical work, in order to receive welfare, working class women had to tell themselves as good. They had to tell themselves as the re redemptive subject. I'm a fallen woman, but I will become a good woman if you give me welfare and I'll look after myself. Now they have to perform it. The whole of reality television is that I have learned all about how bad I am. I've found my true self. I know how awful I was. I know how badly I've treated my children. And I've learned to put my child on the naughty step. I think the funniest one is the swan where you get a complete and total and absolute makeover. So you look like every other 15 women who've just gone before you in terms of plastic surgery, and everybody says, I've found my true self. <laughs> and they have to perform their true self as a redemptive self. But I think the performance is really powerfully ideological, as in 
People have to perform to standards that they've had to learn to desire. The performance is key. The doing is key. It's not just telling. It's performing. Now, sometimes we see that splitting apart, but the performance is very powerful. And it's this performance that's entertainment, which is really, really uh, performing one's goodness, performing one's uh, hegemonic consent for the future is entertainment. They also have to reveal their inner psychological dispositions. Um, you can do a whole analysis of reality TV as the resurgence of psychology made popular because everybody has to find their inner selves. Like putting on a new dress is a way of finding your inner self. That dress gave me confidence and now I can go out and reorganize my whole relationship. Um, so revealing, performing and revealing are really important. And being subject to evaluation is also very important. And what's significant is that it's not just the experts on the television that are telling the people that they are bad and they need to change their clothes, their relationships, their dispositions, their eating, their speaking and everything. It's literally the audience as well. The audience is invited in to judge who they are. Now, in terms of value, we know that it's sensation that produces the real economic value of television. The more sensation you can generate, the more advertisers you can attract, the more advertising you can attract, the more income you can literally make, the more likely you are to be able to franchise your programme, and that's where the real money is. We also know from fantastic work by Eva Luz that the commodification of intimacy, the glamour of suffering, as she calls it, makes money through generating that sensation. But it's interesting that the TV participants have to reveal their lack of value in order that other forms of value can be made from them. And so continuing themes of bad persons. There's misrecognition by TV participants and audience reactions. I've talked about how um, the participants and our audience are uncomprehending about why these people are seen to be bad, what's wrong with them. The ideological standards of the television, the, the imposition of historical standards are challenged, aesthetically, relationally, labour. There's, there's a paper that we've written on labour which looks at how um, people just getting on with things and not moaning and not being pretentious and just doing their work is really significant to how different values are attributed to television participants. The other thing that was really, really key is that rather than just revealing the bad person, reality television literally evokes or incites a very strong sense of injustice. Our audiences who were working class put themselves in the circuits of value and judgment that were being attributed to the TV participants. We talk about the as if moment. It's as if you were being judged in the same way they were being judged. And of course that's based on social position. You wouldn't put yourself into an as if if, it wasn't, if you couldn't possibly be the as if. So there's a whole sense of kind of triggering injustice by these programmes. There's massive challenges to, the, to those with the authority to judge, and we did realise that one of the most powerful reactions um, in our reality TV project was laughing at the experts, challenging the authority of the experts. And we came to think that one of the big pleasures of the viewing was actually in the challenge. They've got it all wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. Look at the state of them. Who are they to talk? So the kind of reaction to the television, and that's what we, we call the book, the reaction is very, very important. And what, although the reality television programmes, like the Formations research, was expected to reveal 
Um, the bad person, the singular bad subject made through gender, usually bad femininity, what it did was actually provoke a real recognition of class standards, of class and how it worked. And they talk, our audiences talk constantly about the class relationships, although if you ask them to identify as working class, they won't. But if you ask them to talk about fairness, inequality and injustice, you can't shut them up. So there's a whole interesting thing about what discourse can be used to actually address these issues. What became highly significant, and I think has just been going on for centuries, is motherhood. Motherhood is the site, the central site of challenges to value. A moral economy was defended and reversed. And in the formations research and in the work of people like Steph Lawler, Val Gillies, fantastic work, Diane Ray's brilliant work, was that a completely different respectability produced through different caring relationships was proposed and provoked. Those who sent their children um, to child carers were seen to be the most disrespectful toward their children. So there were lots of different challenges going on which produced a very different moral economy. The other thing was we realised there was a huge, and this is, a, a, this is the thread that runs through the book, but we realised at the end how significant it was. The use of one's time to claim value is also very significant. Our working class participants, as in the formations, did not have a future-oriented, self-invested, accruing model of themselves, as would Bourdieu, actually, and most theorists of the self. They had a much more dispersed present, historically informed view of the self. But that's quite a, uh, another point in many senses. But what's key was that in all of this, in all of the kind of formations research and in all of this, is that value struggles, the struggle for value, the struggle not to be misrecognised as having value is key to all, but always recognised through different terms. And so I say but, because to come to the final... Fine, I'm okay. Final bit. So I think respectability is still significant analytically. As long as people are being judged. Of course they're being judged. We now see massive amounts of hate speech. The use of the word chav, the use of the word feral underclass, the use of the... Um, <coughs> all the stuff around kind of hating working class people that we see in circulation now. It's just absolutely extreme. Um, so, of course, it's, it's still significant because people are being judged and that judgment is being legitimated. I think it's really important at this political moment that injustice is seen as a class position rather than a psychological problem, those naughty people who smash windows. Um, and I think respectability is an ideological practice that sustains inequality and injustice that's lived intimately, though, and is lived through responsibility. And I think respectability is one of the key ways that women are expected to invest in ambivalence. Now, ambivalence is really difficult. And I remember Les and I, again, a long time ago when we were writing the book on sexuality, we ended every chapter with ambivalence. And I kept saying, Les, we can't just say it's ambivalence. <laughs> not, not everything can be ambivalent. I think he's right, so I'd like to take this opportunity now. Um, <laughs> That there is so much incitement of ambivalence to love, to not love, to be respectable, to not be respectable, to invest in this, to not... And if we think about it, we all live massive contradictions, so it kind of makes sense, that ambivalence. And I think when 
When I was writing the critique of Bourdieu, I realised what, what Bourdieu just did not get. It's like everything worked for Bourdieu, like it worked for Althusser. It all worked. It neatly fitted. Everything happened in place the way it should. The positions fit, fit the dispositions and everything kind of just fits. Well, it doesn't. We live ambivalent. And I think as post-colonial theorists have pointed out, and as queer theorists have pointed out, ambivalence may be the most powerful um, seducer into um, ideology. So I think ambivalence is the key reproduction to power, and that means post-colonial, queer, and not Bourdieu at the end there. <laughs> so I think respectability also reveals the effective power of judgment. This is not just happening, the state imposes an ideology or the ideological state apparatus impose an ideology and everybody just learns it and we all do it and we, we become it. This is about living the affect of power and judgment and humiliation, the struggles to actually have something where a huge amount of energy is put into defence. And I wonder, and I'm, I'm, my jury is out on this, I do wonder whether the refusal to be respectable is actually a challenge or not. Because if you think about the programme, the programme that got me was uh, La Detta Lady. People know La Detta Lady, you know. The absolutely quintessential badly behaving women, they do everything they possibly can, including vomiting over each other and having sex at every possible opportunity in every possible way. Really, really, really the epitome of non-respectability. But... Is that what we want? Is that what, you know, not ideology would be? So I'm kind of, kind of, I'm really, really concerned about that. And I think once women are invested in motherhood, <laughs> that's it. There's not going to be any of those sort of challenges because you cannot not disperse your value into your child. Not giving your child value and not enabling your child to have the value that you know it would require to move through life with... Um, Value will be very, very hard. So ultimately, I think a huge amount of time, energy and effort are put into defending against devaluation. And I think that what means is that these inadvertently authorise the judgments of others. This is how I'd want to argue the defence may be ideological. I hate that argument, but I've made it. And I got to it by writing a book. So it's kind of one of those things you get to at the end and think, God, I wish I hadn't written that. I wish I'd written something else entirely. So I might, uh, the book's going to be published, but I might have to write another one now. Um, <coughs> I think this begins with inheritance at birth. That it's established by the conditions of possibility. Sorry, that should be e.g. in which we inhabit. Through. <laughs> I did write it on the plane this morning. <laughs> I've just come back. <laughs> I'm amazed I can still stand. Um, and so it's the conditions of possibility we're in. And I do think it's not about misrecognition. It's not about state imposition. It's not about interpolation. I do actually think ideology works through investment through the investments that we make. We make investments in having value. And Lauren, who was here last year, Lauren Ballant, and who I had an argument with on the radio last week, I think her theory works perfectly. Cruel optimism is about an investment in the object that will only do you damage. I think her theory works perfectly for gender. I'm not sure it works for, for class, but I think investment is really, really important. And I think what we need to think of is where is value recognised, how, and have different theories for understanding that which is symbolic, and not just speak as if everything, the good self, all the theories of the self, are the self, or universalising from that. 
But there are huge problems with this, and I keep having but. Every time I write myself into an answer, I write another but, so you know, I keep writing myself out of it. So that's why it's good for questions, really. Um, but values of suffering and endurance are valorised locally. That's quite a problem. We know that. We know that in terms of gender. And the logic established through ideological struggle is occurring at the moment. I think one of the most interesting things, and I think I've got one more point after this, um, that we found out through the reality TV work, in the same way as in the formations work, working class women will invest in having, young, well, having children young because that's something to have, something that they love, something that loves them, something that, that is caring, wonderful relation, no, than rather than going to work for the working poor and being sacked regularly and exploiting continually. So we can see why the state is continually trying to get them off welfare because logically, the logical conclusion it's much better to have a child than go and work in some really horrific job where you're going to be um, treated very, very badly. So I think there's a, there's a challenge going on there and the state fully recognises that challenge and is continually trying to stop. Um, in, in Victorian periods, it just tried to stop working class women bre breeding completely. Now it kind of tries to do it by making them so poor they wouldn't be able to bring up the children anyway. So... However, I do want to end by saying, and this is where I'm at at the moment, I do think if we start thinking in terms of a different ontology and a different relationality, a different way in which time and space is organised and a different way in which investments can be made, we may be able to see a way in which sometimes ideology gets challenged. Thank you. Yeah. 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 I should warn you, Bev is suffering from jet lag, so I'm trying to encourage her to sit down because she falls over. <laughs> okay, um, we've got uh, 35 minutes for questions. Um, I'd just like to say, while you're thinking of your questions, thank you very much. I, I deliberately didn't stop you because I was too enthralled. I couldn't bear to. So, um, questions... And uh, the other thing I should say is that we have two microphones, so if you're in, on either side, um, could you wait for the microphone before your question? This gentleman here, Thank please. You. Hi, hello. One, very much enjoyed it. Thank you, Beverly. Very interesting talk. I know you didn't talk, talk uh, much about Big Brother and that kind of thing. I don't know if you could sort of offer any kind of opinion what you thought of how people are betrayed there. My um, thinking is something that goes back to my A-level sociology days, which was, I think it's Stanley Cohen, Folk Devils and Moral Panics. I thought that might have some kind of relevance, or just to think what your opinions are on that, please. Thank you. Okay. Uh, well, I think we deliberately avoided Big Brother because we know, we knew from the people who worked on the programme that they were literally looking for what they call freaks. So it wasn't about transforming, it wasn't about becoming the good subject, it was about performing um, strangeness in various different ways. So I should have probably said that the project itself was partly about challenging theories of individualisation. Um, so it was to look at what did it mean to be a subject and to be transformed on television or, or to represent transformation? So we tried to avoid it. It always came up. I mean, it, you couldn't avoid it because everybody wants to talk, well, did want to talk about it all the time. I think it's past its sell-by date now, but it's made, you know, I think it's 
made a huge amount of money. I think it was 5.7 million the last time it was refranchised. So serious money stuff. But the, other, the, the thing about folk devils is an interesting question because it's not as if these people are frightening. Whereas the mods from Stanley Cohen's Mods and Rockers, they were meant to be kind of the new frightening people, like the lower middle class boys who are potentially much more dangerous and could now be recognised. Whereas I think none of these programmes really represent people who are frightening to anybody other than themselves. They basically say this is the limit of the, the good subjects. And part of me wonders, because most of the analysis on reality TV came from the US. And it looked at reality TV as, as a kind of mechanism of governmentality. You know, it teaches people how to become a better self. Well, our research basically showed that it didn't. <laughs> people, sorry, I'm sorry, forget about that. So people think um, people don't think they're the bad self in the first place, and they can't work out why. So I don't think it's working at that kind of threat level, and I don't think it's been accepted in that same way. The programmes that would work more like that, there was a series called Made in Britain where it did working class men. And it was violent working class men, like men fighting, with fighting dogs and fighting uh, birds and things like that. And it was based in Stoke-on-Trent, I remember. That was meant to be, that was much more of a, a threat. But I think these people seem to be a threat to themselves more than anybody Hi, Beth. Thank you very much for the paper, which I very, very much enjoyed. And, and I'd, I'd like to take you to one of the comments that you said you, you kind of didn't like, that, but, and you made it. And I was thinking about um, those women um, removing themselves from spaces where uh, they, they didn't feel comfortable or they, they were misrecognized. And I wonder whether that kind of removal is more of a withdrawal and, and, and a withdrawal to create um, some different spaces and different sociality and whether this came out through either the formation research or the... Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. With, 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 without a doubt, it's like they would say things like, why put yourself, why put yourself through humiliation, basically? Um, and it was when they were caught off guard almost, when they go somewhere and they'd be unexpectedly put down. So both research projects have been absolutely full of kind of those incidents and what we found and, and I do go into it in, in, in another paper was that there is a, um, I don't want to be romantic but I don't, I don't want to romanticize maybe I don't want to romanticize um, what's going on in terms of relationality completely but there was, when we asked people what they did with their time, it was really interesting because, if, again, poor budgers coming in for a lot of stick today, but if you look at something like distinctions, you know, everybody's doing something and they have to learn to like olives and particular foods and whatever else. And then they get mapped on, you know, the distance from the kind of the good taste. And then Mike Savage and his group, um, LaRue and Runette, just Tony Bennett did that big study of um, taste in Britain. And they look to see what people do with their time. It's all about investment in things, going to the theatre, learning music, reading books, watching particular television programmes. It's all about doing things. What was really interesting in both Formations research and this research is people just, they're together. They're not doing anything, they're just talking. They're talking about the family. They're, they're just not, 
they, they're not that model of the accrual investing self in themselves. It's an entirely different disposition towards the social. So, they, so you say to them when you're doing the questionnaires over what you do with your time, and they just go, well, we, we just, you know, we just talk. And then when you ask them about what they do in the television, they say, well, we have it on all the time, but well, we don't really watch it. <laughs> so, which, so unlike our middle-class viewers who control the television, some of them hid it in cupboards, some of them put it behind the sofa, and, and control the viewing completely, and controlled it for their children, they could only watch so many programs. So the time thing becomes really, really significant. But then, if you don't, if time is not a precious resource, you don't have to think about it in terms of what you do with it, you just do. So I think there is a, there's a really, really different, and I don't think we've gone enough into, I, you know, in a way, I don't think we have the, the research um, tools to go into that as much, but I think that's really significant. There might be people here who've, who've done more on that, who may be able to say more. Uh, th thank, thanks, Bevan. It's such a privilege to hear someone talk about their research trajectories, particularly via the voices that have been haunting them, from mothers to theoretical concepts. So thank you for that. My, my question was actually in relationship to uh, the, the um, point you made about Lauren Balant's cool optimism. I was very glad to have heard your conversation on the radio. And I, I was particularly interested in, in your suggestion that it was a relevant to gender, not to class or didn't necessarily work as well in relationship to class, because I was wondering how you would reflect on the applicability of her model to both the reality TV research and your formations research, because I was thinking that in a way you could imagine Trini and Susanna saying to working class women, your, your, your optimisms are cruel, you are being diminished by your attachment to the wrong objects. And so in a way you could almost argue that that implicit in an idea called optimism is that some lives are diminished, that there's some sort of judgment in that. Mm -hmm. I mean, who is to say whose attachments are cruel? So I was just wondering if you could reflect on that. Mm. Well, I, I think that's almost the, the structural conceit of a, of a lot of these programs, is that people are meant to learn to recognise their bad attachments to their bad clothing or their bad partners or whatever else. And I think it, it does work in different ways. I, I, that's a kind of really general comment about gender and class because I was so kind of cross about the lack of historical analysis of precarity, something that came from a different place. But I think it's much easier to see in terms of investments in personal relationships how that investment keeps being made. I think when one's living in conditions of precarity where those investments are never, so in terms of class, class terms, say, or even basic economic terms, where those investments are never stabilised in the same way almost, it's more difficult. But then they work together, so then it's really, really difficult. I think the great thing about trying to force people to recognise their, um, what she would call their bad attachments, reveals what people think are bad attachments. Now, sometimes we do know what bad attachments are. Violent partners are bad attachments. Sometimes we don't. So I think it needs a lot of unpacking. With Trini and Susanna, you know, the bad attachments are hilarious. And my favourite bits are when, in what not to wear when they go back. And nobody's done what they say. They've just taken, <laughs> they've taken the, is it two and a half thousand pounds, got the clothes, and, you know, they're still having a great life wearing their excessive whatever clothing. So, and, and interestingly... 
When Trini and Susanna swapped channels, I think they went from, I can't remember which way around it was, and went psychological, Trini and Susanna on Earth relationships and did some horrific things, absolutely horrific things that I thought was probably some of the most disgusting television ever um, because they were trying to say the reason you have a really horrific relationship is because of this, this and this and they had absolutely no understanding really of what was going on and can you do something like that in half an hour on television is really obscene but that didn't work at all and it didn't work with audiences and their, their ratings dropped and they lost their contract so that it's, it's, it's really, really difficult. It does need a whole, whole thing. So it's a bit like judgments of taste reveal much more about the classifier than the classified. Those who say these are bad objects, it's kind of revealing as well. So I think that's, did that answer it? Is that? Uh, down the front here, please. You just have to wait for the mic. Yeah, yeah um, I, I, um, found a lot of things that you said incredibly interesting, but I just wanted to ask you, um, you talked about the, um, that when you talk to working class viewers, um, there were um, black South Asian and white uh, groups. And you, know, you also talked about um, that this is really about white working class women within this, these programs. So I just wondered if you could elaborate a little bit on, on yeah. Yeah, it does get really complex. <laughs> I think it needs a whole whole paper really on the differences between them. What was very interesting in the the, the formations ethnography is white working class. In the TV project, there were black and white working class, and their responses were nearly always the same. And they were very very interesting because they. Um, the one that most surprised us was when the black working class group were defending Jay Goody. And they were defending Jay Goody on class terms. She's a ghetto rat just like us. She's done what she could with her life. It's really, um, you know, she's ducking and diving. She's just looking after her kids. So that they really, the comments really kind of cohered. The real radical differences were with our South Asian group, um, who had much higher, higher, that's interesting, um, much stronger standards of honour. So to go on reality TV would have been seen to be something that would destroy your honour and you wouldn't ever do it. And they had no kind of um, affiliation with badly behaving white or black working class subjects. So, and they were really, really interesting. I mean, part of the issue around this is methodological in many senses because you find people through friends or groups or whatever else and you go and talk to them. And the... We did three stages of research, so we did the how to locate the objects, the television, their practices, their social position, their habits, um, and then watching programmes with them, and then a focus group at the end with them all to see how they debated these issues publicly. And what was interesting is that they all responded very, very differently. And the South Asian group thought we were social workers who were coming in, and one of them actually had a passport out um, to see to kind of say I'm a legitimate British subject. So the, the complexities around race were quite significant and they wouldn't talk about a lot of things. They'd just cut off sentences and say it's cultural difference. It's cultural difference. And we'd say, what's that? And they'd say it's cultural difference. So kind of the transcript from the focus group was about that thick with the South Asian group. With the other groups, it was about that thick. I mean, you can, it, it was so kind of different in terms of what people would speak about. So the arguments about class are mainly made about the black and white working class 
and we just know so, so, so little about the other group in terms of class. We, we'd ask them about class, and interestingly, they could sometimes define what they would be in India or Pakistan, but they didn't know what they would be in Britain. Really complex. Thank you. Um, okay, could, could I take this question and then... And then. Um, thank you so much for that um, really breathtaking <laughs> presentation of your work. I just wanted to ask you a question about a specific reality program which you mentioned, which is Wife Swap. And um, it, it's almost like it's named in, in some kind of uh, parallel Bordian terms. <laughs> um, but uh, one of the things that you talked about, which was standard, I wondered how you thought about standard when analyzing those. Because if I just think of one example from the program, something that would have been, that would have made a working class woman respectable, for example, showing cleanliness as close to godliness, ends up becoming actually the fault of the working class woman because that's all she can focus on. So she becomes kind of the obsessive compulsive clean, cleaning freak, whereas the middle class woman in the program appears to pay more attention to her children. So it seems like the standards by which one class is held against the other are shifting and, and, uh, and contradictory in that sense. And I just wondered if in, in your work you found it to be, you know, to be particularly contrary, uh, contradictory in their accounts. Again, if that's a really tricky one because um, in wife swap, they, they are usually expected to display all forms of respectability, which includes, sorry, <laughs> sorry, which includes um, caring for children in particular. So caring for children becomes probably the main form of judgment. Uh, caring less for partners, but being thoughtful um, emotionally seems to be another one. And cleanliness, as you quite rightly say, can sometimes be good or bad. So it's about excess. You've not got to be excessively clean or excessively not clean. You've got to care a lot and you have to care about yourself. You have to care about your own body as well as everything else. So it's almost as if the standards have increased over the number of sites which can be visualized. But it's the scale by which they can be exercised. But, <laughs> so many buts, it depends on who's watching it as well. Because what we realised, because we did spend, um, sorry, I forgot to say one of the first stages of the research was spending um, six months doing the textual analysis of them. Um, and what we did realise was that with wife swap, the conceit or its structuring mechanism or whatever you want to call it, um, is usually, um, in Britain, the lower middle class woman and the um, working class woman. And it's usually the aspirational one versus the non-aspirational one. So it's full-time motherhood versus those who go out to work. But not work as in um, usually not kind of uh, professional work. And the battle becomes between those two usually over what is good or bad work or not work. So, and it's about, is work good for children? So the battle, the kind of, at the end, it's not just about containing the excess, it's, it's how you spend time and what you think that time is important. And so they were the ones that were the, the most contested by our viewers 
but our middle class viewers just thought why swap um, why would people fight about jobs that were really insignificant anyway so it, it was really 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 divided the most extreme one and the one that was the most and it, it's still there and I've written a whole paper on it was if people remember it it kept coming back it, the program was first shown in 1983 I think it was and it was Michelle and Barry Do people remember Michelle and Barry Anybody remember? Oh my God, it's awful. And Michelle and Barry, and that was all about at the end, because the, again, the conceit is the women have a fight at the end over whose standards matter and whose standards count, and they both lose, basically. So it's kind of showing, that, that's the moral economy of it, showing those moral debates. And, and in the end, it, it's revealed that Barry's never made Michelle a cup of tea for 15 years, but Barry has made a cup of tea for the... Um, I've forgotten her name, who swapped into the house. So this massive, massive battle goes on. And then Michelle says, but you never even took the top off the Domestus bottle. But what it reveals is just the tragedy of their relationship. So they, it, they never work straightforwardly. It's what do they reveal about something else usually? And it's through that time, space, attention, commitment that it usually happens. So, yeah, <laughs> you're right, but it's a hard, hard one to start unpacking. Thanks, Bev, for a fantastic presentation. Um, I wanted to uh, ask you about judgment. <laughs> Sorry about that. You would. Um, because in much of the paper, judgment appears in the context of evaluating and producing lack of value over against value, which can never be realized. Yeah. Uh, but then at one point you talked about um, the way some of the people that you were working with in reality TV context were challenging authority. So um, they seem to be challenging those that have value and are seeking to reproduce this economy of value and absence of value. And I suppose my question is about the nature of judgment that's taking place in relation to the authority figure and uh, what sort of trajectory that process of judgment taking and judgment making has and whether it's different from the trajectory of judgment making and taking that's taking place in relation to working class. Uh, I suppose connected to that is the idea that perhaps, um, you know, a lot of the stuff on YouTube which is challenging authority produces an arch cynicism so it doesn't sort of empower and help to mobilize people to produce a different sensibility, uh, different politics. So um, I suppose that's sort of in the background of my, my query about what's happening in relation to judging authority figures. Mm. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, I think the judgment's working quite differently. I think you've got the judgment that is symbolic and it is symbolically dispersed and recognized. So the kind of the middle class gaze, the middle class standards, the judgment that that is lacking. And that I think that is symbolic judgment. I think mostly that is about attempting to legitimate power or the standards of those who have power. And I think maybe then it's the legitimation that is challenged through the challenges to authority. So you'd have kind of the authority, you'd have the kind of, the way I'd say it, 
you'd have the kind of symbolic judgment that we know what that usually is. You're not meant to be loud, fat, drinking, eating, so-and-so, so-and-so. We know what those are. And they've been made very, very visible for us. But then there's an attempt to legitimate those through practice, and that's where the kind of the challenge comes in, where the practice is seen as um, not correct or is seen as faulty. So I think maybe, maybe it's... Maybe it's the process of legitimation that would need expanding or developing more. It's like where or when is legitimation secured? And sometimes it is secured through giving authority and sometimes through anti-authority. But I think there's a huge problem with anti-authority because you know, we know from all the really good Australian studies on children and television is that, do you remember they used to, um, there's a great study of, of why... Was it eight to 11-year-old boys like Prisoner Cell Block H? Do people remember Prisoner Cell Block H? Yeah. <laughs> kind of, um, how would you de can somebody describe it? A kind of big butch women in prison with a kind of scenery falling down all the time. So it kind of became a lesbian cult item at one point. But this was the favourite programme in this analysis of young Australian boys' TV. And they liked it because it was so anti-authority. And the authority figures were so obvious and they could see it. So I think that's not about mobilisation in a way. I think it's when the anti-authority anti statement is attached to a larger idea of something like class through injustice, that it works. So if we think, maybe if we think about how the authority works... Can we think about how it works effectively? I'm just thinking about, you know, the kind of Spinoza says affect's only significant when it's connected to an idea, when it can be actually attached to something that matters. And I'm wondering if when the, the, if the anti-authority is attached to something that can be mobilised, that matters to class, that might work. Whereas otherwise it might just be kids watching Prisoners of Block H. Does that make sense to you? because you are an expert on judgment, so I've probably got it wrong. <laughs> Not judging. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Because they're, they're all about the incitement to judge others, aren't they? Mm. That could be the political challenge. Mm. Nice. Hi, I really enjoyed that. Um, I'm a third year under, uh, undergrad in the geography department here at LSE and I'm doing quite a sociological dissertation on um, how girls form their aspirations in Lambeth, teenage girls. Um, and I was wondering whether, I mean, I'm kind of using formations of class and gender in the dissertation, and I was wondering whether you think aspirations for teenage girls have changed since you wrote formations to like the present day and whether you think reality TV has a big um, kind of, yeah, whether it has a big effect on their aspirations. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'd want to say I'd want to do an ethnography if I was doing that, I think, to find out. I th have they changed? I don't honestly know. I think what's intervened since then is the idea that you can be a celebrity but that's all still based around having the right body, the right culture, 
and the right talents. It's still based upon particular forms of capital. But um, Kim Allen did a beautiful PhD at Goldsmiths on the Brit School, where it was very interesting in class terms because the Brit School was meant to be for working class kids, but middle class kids have worked, parents have worked out how to get their kids in it, so they've kind of taken over. But what's interesting is that a lot of them believe they can become famous, but they can't. So I'd want to look at that over time because aspirations to become um, more famous or, or to become famous. But in the work we did with the TV thing, when we asked people why they would or would not go on reality TV and what they would do, um, they all just saw it as an opportunity structure. The working class women, not the South Asian women, the black and white working class women, saw it as an opportunity structure. It's something that uh, could give me money, could could look after my kids. So it's hard because the other thing that I'd answer in response, and I don't really know the answer, is education. I think what's been really, really interesting in the riots is that kids have learnt to want an education. So I think it was, was it Dep Alex, was it Deptford Town Hall that was sprayed with don't take our education away? There was one amazing bit of spray paint. Hmm? Yeah, it was just, it's like, so the aspiration to education is really, really, I think, increased over the last, I think that has been a result of new labour. Hi, um, thanks very much for your very interesting talk. Um, something that you didn't really touch on um, that I'm quite interested in is um, these things that are more documentaries but portrayed as reality TV. I'm thinking mostly about um, some things that I've heard about um, it's really great at the moment that people are talking about um, my big fat gypsy wedding is very like, racist um, and things um, like my transsexual summer. Um, I work mostly for sex worker rights activist groups and we know that there's a lot of TV documentary workers, um, people working on um, making documentaries about sex workers and interestingly they, they only really want to talk to middle class or upper middle class sex workers who are independent, not doing any kind of illegal or, or other kinds of work. Um, so I'm interested to what you think about the performance of um, respectability in terms of those kinds of documentaries as kind of an othering thing, um, or how that differs to the, the reality TV that you've talked about as these kind of swaps or experts or transformations. Can you say a bit more about that? It's interesting that, because usually, that's what, what's interesting about that is that usually sex workers have been used again as kind of the, the constitutive limits. We have, right from the kind of history of early print, we have lots of representations of what they would call prostitution to kind of work almost in the same way as reality television, to reveal that which is seen to be bad and gratuitous. And, and if you looked for a period of time on British television, if you wanted to see where before re the boom in reality television, where were working class women, mainly white, but sometimes black, it was either in the crime dramas, where they worked as sex workers, or it was in the documentaries where there were sex workers, and that was where they were predominantly represented. So it's interesting that you say that they go. Oh, sorry, <laughs> that they're sorry, that they're actually looking for the respectable form now. So I, I'm quite surprised by that because you don't usually get a job in TV without making a name for yourself because the current political economy of television is really, really difficult. And so the way to get a job is to literally, I mean. 
produce something that will um, give you a name. So, so kind of focusing on, I'm surprised, but obviously you, you work on it. Mm. Mm. Is it about the scandal of middle-class women um, kind of selling themselves in various ways? No? I'm just wondering, because you know, like, Sex in the City suddenly made um, sexuality a possibility for middle-class women to speak publicly about without being charged with the excuse of excess. Um, I'm wondering if they're trying to do something like that, but I don't know. What do you think they're doing? You just, what do you think they're doing? I'm not really sure. Um, I think that um, that it's it's quite difficult. We're trying to um, do a lot of the media training with some of these sex workers to um, make sure that uh, that a kind of um, that the the media doesn't kind of um, um, take away their rights in terms of what they want to say and how they want to um, portray themselves. But I think that the sense of um, the sense of trying to um, work out where um, sex and gender and power and money are all kind of conflated into these kinds of sex worker rights issues and where it's about legality and all of that kind of stuff is is what I'm, I'm not really sure what they're mm. interested in but I think it's something to do with it, it suddenly being sexy to be this kind of to, to be working at this kind of intersection of gender and power and money um, I'm not really sure. Mm. It's interesting because it's like, you know, there was a whole series of programs on lap dancing to kind of say this is about empowerment. This is feminist empowerment, really. Um, and, and they didn't work. So I'm surprised. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised just in terms of getting a job in television. It just doesn't seem to... Yeah, <laughs> work. That's kind of why I asked you, because I'm, I'm not sure what they're trying to add there and yeah. if we're trying to help yeah. some of the people trying to work out. I'm, I'm very sorry, but I think we've run out of time. Um, I'd like to thank you all for your excellent questions, but I'd particularly like to thank Bev for such a fantastic um, paper and, and giving us so much this evening. Thank you so much. <laughs>